More technical problems. Very frustrating. All right. It is what it is. I'll forgive my tardy start here. Computer issues that are not within the purview of my control. Today, in the inheritance cycle, we're going to be concluding something that we've begun several episodes ago. We're dealing with a faith conundrum, or a series of faith conundrums. Now, it's probably important to, to point out that whilst the subject matter does not directly impact the subject of Betochen, by extension, it really does. That is to say, we're not talking about betachen. That's true, we're not. We're talking about why good things happen to bad people. And that follows what we learned about yesterday, or I should say two or three episodes ago, as to why bad things happen to good people. And of course you're saying, what does it have to do with me learning how to build my betachen? Well, here's the thing. If betochen is real, and my trust in Hashem is necessarily supposed to engender or bring forth the most remarkable blessings, why doesn't it look that way? Like, if this equation is, is accurate, the world should be a very different place. But it isn't. So the question, of course, becomes, why not? What went wrong? What's uh, broken in the system? You know, it's like all these computer problems I was having today. It's just like, uh, you know, your computer works for three days and then something else goes wrong. You have to figure out what's, what's wrong. So you, like you look, they diagnose the problem and if you're not as proficient as I, you may be paying somebody a lot of money to diagnose the problem and then you get frustrated because you're paying people money and you don't like the job they're doing and, and so on and so forth. But you have to diagnose the problem or the issue, and only then can you try to solve or fix it. We have to figure out what's going on here. Like, this doesn't, it doesn't seem to be adding up with what we learned. Now, now having said that, the, the answers that we've been getting, and the answers we'll get today, are not going to actually suffice to explain any particular set of circumstances. So if, if you're coming and expecting to get the information as to, ah, so now I know exactly why such and such unfolded. Yeah, think again. It's not going to happen. It doesn't work that way. What, what this does do is provide us with a 
remarkable amount of context. This is the Torah way to look at the world. It's the Torah way to look at reality. The truth is the truth. Goodness is goodness. Goodness, by and large, does engender goodness, and performing mitzvot will invariably, most of the time, enable us to perform more mitzvot. A person who trusts in Hashem will get everything he or she needs. They will be provided for or taken care of, broadly speaking. Sometimes things don't quite work that way. And rather than drawing our own conclusions and saying, aha, so this doesn't really work. So it isn't really true. Instead, we have enough information to be able to understand and appreciate that the ways of Hashem are indeed a mystery. And the fact that the ways of Hashem are indeed a mystery prevents us from drawing conclusions. Now the thing is, you knew the ways of Hashem were a mystery before you started watching, and you're going to know that the ways of Hashem are a mystery after we finish watching. <laughs> and no matter what I say, it's not really going to change that little faith fact that we don't know the ways of Hashem. So why are we even having this conversation? Well, the answer is very simple. There's not understanding and not, not understanding. Not, not every lack of knowledge is on par with the second. And here's a simple example, something I spoke about in a number of previous lectures, but I'll just mention it quickly in case you forgot or are joining us for the first time. So there's this, there's this Darwinian idea called predeterminism, where, where we say, okay, like we should be able to determine the future by means of analyzing all the variables. And if we don't have enough information, we can't determine how things will work out. But if we have all the information, we'll be able to determine exactly how things will work out. Incidentally, there are people who predict the weather, and they're generally pretty good at it. And they look at variables, and they look at past examples, and past, past, uh, past frames. They have uh, models they create, and they usually kind of work. Except that it doesn't always go quite that way. There's like a wild card somewhere. So within this idea of, of uh, predeterminism, there's this, there's this concept that was discovered by a great physicist, nuclear physicist, his name is Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr discovered that when something is in motion, that the nuclei cannot be determined. And because the nuclei, this, the location of the nuclei cannot be determined when something is in motion due to the velocity of whatever it might be that's right now in motion. So since we can't locate the nuclei, we will not be able to predict how things are going to land because you need to have the information. You have to know exactly what the nuclei is to know how the nuclear physics is going to function. And this is called, today in physics, the Heisenberg principle of uncertainty. Because we're uncertain as to the location of the nuclei, because something's in motion, so we're uncertain. So somebody could say, where's it going to land? And one person will say, I don't know. And then you have this person who studied nuclear physics and has a tremendous understanding of velocity, and he's also going to say, I don't know. And the both I don't knows are very different from one another. So do we know the ways of Hashem? I don't know. 
Do we know why Hashem does it? I don't know. Nobody knows. Yet, when you study the information that's available to us in Jewish theology, there's a whole different kind of I don't know. It's a much rarefied and exalted perspective. So, with, with this in mind, um, before we begin today's class, I just want to mention that it's my, my bubby, my maternal grandmother's second yard site today. She lived to be almost 100 years old, and she was a remarkable woman in many ways, a survivor of the evil communists and then the evils of Nazism, and um, one of those uh, members of that great generation who rebuilt their lives after losing so much. Her name was Sarah Pesha, and she was the daughter of the Chassid, Rav Nachum Yitzchak, and I'm dedicating the Torah we study to the elevation of her neshama, and I hope that this provides some kind of nachas, some kind of uh, satisfaction and pleasure on high. She spent a lot of time with me and had lots of uh, angst from me <laughs> as a rambunctious youngster. So hopefully now she's having nachas. Okay, on to today's class, the, um, the inheritance cycle. Rabbeinu Bachaya is actually, actually talks about a number of different reasons as to why people who are doing bad things might have good things happen to them. In, in, in total, Rabbeinu Bachaya actually is going to be offering us a total of six explanations or six reasons. We've gone through the first four. The last two, I would like to pose it, are not mutually exclusive. There's kind of like an interplay between them, as you'll see. So the first thing he says is, and where, if you're following along in the Kiat edition, I made sure to bring the book today, page 97. The fifth reason has something to do with the fact that a person might benefit from the goodness or the righteousness sown in a previous generation. Let's take a look inside. V'yesh. Shetihiyeh lechesed shekodam oviv. And then there is the possibility, or sometimes, the prosperity of the wicked person that's vexing us and frustrating us is due to the chesed, which literally translates as kindness, but perhaps here it would best be understood in the frame of an act of righteousness, an act of holiness, an act of uh, piety, a mitzvah. Shekodam aviv that was performed or preceded this individual by his or her father. Could be mother too, an ancestor. V'hoya ro'i lehetiv livno va'avuro. And so it's appropriate that a person should receive this divine beneficence on account of what an ancestor did. You may not be a good person. 
you may not be deserving of goodness. Why then does God giving this bad person good things? And the answer, on account of his or her ancestors, because they had a good father or a good mother. And these people did something special in the past, and so their children are receiving reward for them. Now I know what you're thinking. Or I'm going to guess what you're thinking, because I'm thinking it too. It doesn't sound fair. If somebody did something nice, that's nice. Then they should be rewarded. But if somebody is behaving badly, why should they get goodness because of something nice somebody else did? Well, firstly, life's not fair. That's a matter of fact. And we know that parents appreciate good things being done to their offspring. So, if somebody is grateful for something I did to them, or helped them for, with, and they behave nicely to my children, or to my grandchildren, I'd be appreciative. There are many people whom asked, what do you want for what you did? That's like, how do I repay the favor? And their response is, don't do anything for me, I don't need anything. Take care of my children. Provide for my offspring. And the offspring didn't do anything, and here they're getting provided for. But actually, it's not a reward to them, it's a reward to the ancestry. And it must be noted that this is not specific to people who are terrestrially alive. There are copious sources in Torah that indicate that ancestry languishes or feels the pain Certainly righteous ancestry feels the pain of their progeny, of their future generations, and delights in the good things or good times of their progeny. So it's not unreasonable to say that a person did something good, and because they did something good, they wanted their offspring to benefit, and their offspring are benefiting, and they feel good about it, and that's a reward for them. So you're nice to a child, and the grandparents thank you. You didn't do anything for the grandparents. What do you mean? You took care of their grandchild. But it's not fair. The grandchild is miserable, and he's getting taken care of. <laughs> but life's not fair. Every one of us is influenced by circumstances that are totally beyond our control, in ways good and sometimes not. Suppose a person works really hard. Suppose you don't buy into this whole betachen thing. You don't believe that, you know, God gives. People, people do everything by themselves. I don't think so, by the way. But suppose you're, you don't like the ideas we're talking about here. It doesn't sound fair to you. I said, okay, let's, let's, let's talk in your arena, in the fair arena. So a person worked really hard, and that's why they were successful, because they worked really hard. And then, and then they gave the funds, the money, the whatever it is that they benefited from, they gave it to their offspring. Maybe it was a position. Maybe it was an opportunity. They gave it to their offspring. And you're like, that's not fair. Why, why should the children have that opportunity? They didn't earn it. 
And the person giving to them says, but because they're my children and I care about my children. You should care about all of humanity. You shouldn't care about your children more so than anybody else. That is unnatural. That's unfair. Every normal person, if he or she is only normal, balanced, cares about their offspring. Not to care about your own children or to care about them no more than you care about somebody else's children is unnatural and abnormal. Something's missing. There's a screw missing. This, this system isn't working. Where's, where's, where's fair? Some people benefit to have wonderful parents and some people have abusive parents. And, and they carry baggage because of this. And sometimes they pass it on to the next generation. The parents were bad parents because they got it from a previous generation. There's a brilliant book written about the children of Holocaust survivors. It's called Hitler's Secondary Victims. It's brilliant. And it documents in a very, very careful scientific fashion the way the children of Holocaust survivors absorbed the trauma of their parents. Of course they did. How, how would they not? We grow up in our parents' home. We are influenced by the kinds of lives our parents lived and people who lost everything, who literally barely survived, were, were not unscathed by the experienced. It wasn't like hunky Godori. Okay, you're out of Auschwitz now. Just bounce back and start living again. The fact that the, any of these people managed to build lives and, 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 and to go on in any form or semblance of normalcy is borderline miraculous. So of course the children absorb that. that of, course, of course they live with it. The trauma is a part of them. There's even a genetic element called epigenetics where, where these things get, get passed on even genetically. Is that fair? Life's not fair. Life is, a, it is. It is what it is, as they say. Does that mean that you have the right to blame somebody else for your problems? No. Absolutely not. Incidentally, Yiddishkeit, Torah Judaism, believes that we each have the ability to deal with the challenges Hashem gave us. So if Hashem gave us a unique set of challenges, if we are more challenged, we have more inner strength. I don't say that, I don't say that because I see it necessarily or because it's logical necessarily, that's a, that's a, that we take that on faith. That's what Hashem says. If Hashem is going to judge us, He had to have given us the ability, the wherewithal, to overcome our challenges. So, yes, it's possible that somebody inherits goodness. There's a, there's a grandparent being rewarded now. It's not you. True. That kind of explains things a little bit. In other words, not everything we have is based on our own virtue or merit. Rather, it's something inherited. Does this say somewhere? Is there some kind of biblical precedent for what Rabbeinu Bachaya is suggesting? Actually, multiple biblical precedents. And here, Rabbeinu Bechaya, in one verse after the other, one verse will cascade into the other to make a very clear case for Judaism's embracing this idea that sometimes people will benefit from the kindness, the largesse, the piety, the goodness, the righteousness 
of a previous generation. The first place Rabbeinu Bechai directs us to, and he says, take a look in the book of Kings. Malachim Bey's Kings 2. If you look in the 30th, the, the 10th chapter, the 30th verse. Let me give you a little bit of background over here. So in the book of Kings, in the 9th chapter, we hear about three tasks that were given to Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi, to complete before he leaves this world. He's going to be appointing two kings and one prophet. So the prophet, of course, is Elisha. And he personally carries out the appointment of selecting Elisha, and he gives him the job of appointing the kings. Elisha has already made Chazael king of Aram, and now he goes to a man whose name is Yehu. And Yehu is given instructions to destroy the royal house of Ahav and his monster queen Izevel, horrible people, they have to be destroyed entirely. These are people who set their minds and hearts to eradicating Judaism from the Jewish people and introducing the cult of idolatry called the Baal, worship of the Baal. And Yehu gets marching instructions. And Elisha doesn't even come to Yehu himself. He's a young prophet. And the mannerism of prophet was oftentimes erratic because prophets were receiving transmissions that kind of knocked their systems out and they think he's a madman but the word of the prophets the word of the prophet and Yehu is anointed as king and Yehu goes about carrying carrying this mission forward he he goes after the king the family the heirs and those who are incidental he goes after the leadership of the Baal cult and, I mean, he kills him. He does a lot of killing, a lot of massacring. He kills the king of Israel, his mother, his nephew. And, um, like I said, he does, <laughs> he does a lot of very, very brutal stuff, but, but uh, this is at the command of Hashem. And this takes us through the ninth chapter. And in the tenth chapter, we hear about um, Yehu, after killing Yehoram, the son of Ahav, and Izevel, and Achaziah, their grandson. And then he goes on to wipe out Ahav's 70 sons who were living in the Shomron, even though they were never meant to inherit the throne of Ahav. You know, they're kind of where there's a will, there's a relative, so now they might take over. And Yehu imposes a very, very strong sense of fear amongst all of the people in Israel, including in the distant capital of the Shomron. Ahav's faithful servants are eliminated, and Yehu establishes what becomes the longest-lasting monarchy in the northern kingdom of the Jewish people, known as Malchut Yisrael. So, in the 30th verse of the 10th chapter, we hear about the reign of Yehu. So Yehu is, is um, able to affect an incredible amount of change in the kingdom of Yisrael, and he establishes a dynasty. 
and a dynasty that lasts for several generations. And the, the 30th verse reads like this. God says to Yehu, Ya'an asher because you did good in performing what is right in my eyes. And this is whatever was in, so to speak, my heart, you did. You did to Four generations of yours, the fourth generation will still sit on the throne of Israel. In other words, four of your generations will reign. This is the only dynasty in the kingdom of Israel that lasts for four consecutive generations. Now, it happens to be that the consecutive generations of Yehu were not righteous. So why did God allow them to rule? Because He promised it to their father, grandfather, great-grandfather, because Hashem rewarded Yehu with a dynasty of four generations. In other words, the fourth generation sitting on the throne was not benefiting from their efforts, from their piety, from their devotion to Hashem. Rather, they were enjoying the prosperity on account of the virtues of their great-grandfather, of their ancestor, Yehu. There you have it. That's pretty open shut. It's very clear that somebody benefits or could benefit by virtue of what came before him. As the Pas Lechem points out, that we hear, let's first just go through in, inside the text over here. He says, It was appropriate for his offspring to receive goodness on his account. As it said to Yeo ben Nimshi, So, you got it right there. The past Lechem says, comments on the words of Chesed Shekodam. He says, Bizman HaKodum. It's not something dynamic happening now. It's an old act of righteousness, an old act of goodness. And because an old act of goodness was done, so this is why their children benefited. And it doesn't have to be a lifetime of righteousness. It could be Eze Pu'ulas Chesed. It could be an act of extraordinary kindness. And because somebody did an act of extraordinary kindness, they could have a, a merit. You know, sometimes people do things which are life-changing. There were people during extenuating circumstances, like during the war, who risked their lives to save others. And as a result, they sort of earn Hashem's beneficence, a lifetime of beneficence because of what they did that was so extraordinary. We don't know that Yehu was all that righteous, certainly not later on in his life, but Yehu did some very difficult, very challenging things because he wished to follow the instructions of the prophet. He gets credit. Benedir Voyim, the Paslechem says, here's the thing. Yehu wiped out the generations of the wicked king Ahav and the wicked queen Izevel. So a person might say, well, his act of piety or righteousness, his fulfillment of God's will was in eradicating 
a rotten royal house. So the reward was what we call in Torah lexicon, mida keneged mida, a measure for a measure. In other words, if somebody did something extraordinary in a particular arena, maybe they'll benefit in that arena. But it doesn't mean that it could result in any kind of goodness. Because if we are to take the biblical narrative in its literal iteration, and we should, and that this is Pshut Mikra, Yehu did something specific, and Hashem promised him something specific. He didn't say that they'll have good health necessarily. He didn't say that they'll have nachas from their children. He said, you destroyed a wicked dynasty, and in turn, you will be rewarded with a dynasty. So the Paslechem says, it's not enough to leave it at that. We can't simply build on that biblical precedent because that biblical precedent is very specific. He destroyed the seed, the progeny of a wicked, rotten house of royalty. So his progeny, his seed, was given the governance. How do we know if it's something which is not connected to governance, to royalty, to dynasty? If, if it's not connected to that, well then, you know, that, that wouldn't apply, or so you might think. Therefore, says Paslechem, Rabbeinu Bechaya quotes a second verse now. He takes us into the book of Proverbs, Mishlei. And there in the book of Mishlei, it says, Mithalech bitumo tzadik, the righteous person goes in a sincere way. Bitumo. Some, some will translate it as innocent. He walks innocently. He's righteous. So he walks in his innocent, the righteous fashion, or walks in his innocence. He is righteous. And what happens as a result of his innocence? Lack of sophistication. And he's not making all these calculations. But too much, straightforward. Whatever Hashem says, he does in an innocent way. So what happens is, fortunate are his children after him. And now what are his children fortunate for? We must be speaking about some kind of material benefit. And yet, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar feels compelled to bring a third verse. He has to take us into the book of Psalms, the book of Tilm. The Paslechem says, you know what? The verse in Mishle is problematic because it says, Ashrei von of Acharov, fortunate are the progeny who follows him. He says, Ashrei von of Acharov can also be read, albeit perhaps misread, but it could be read as Acharov, as Mithalech Bitumo, that they too are going in his ways. Kisha'oichazim mase avasehem. And here the Paslechem is referring to words that are found in the Gemara. In Sechet Brachot, on page 7. And the Gemara there speaks about this idea of righteous people who suffer. And bad people, wicked people who prosper. And the Gemara says, that doesn't seem to be fair. Why should somebody suffer on account of somebody else? And the Gemara says, nobody gets punished on account of somebody else. 
Although that seems what the Gemara was saying. That he, you know why this is a tzaddik? Veraloi, this is a tzaddik. It has bad because he's a tzaddik ben Rasha. He's righteous, but he is the children of wicked people. <laughs> so the Gemara says, I don't understand. They were wicked, he gets punished? Seriously? And we invoke this idea of up to four generations, the punishment can be visited to which the Gemara queries. If somebody didn't do anything wrong, why would he be punished? I mean, this fair and this fair. Here it's like God striking him. Striking him for what? So he says, the Gemara comes back and says, when is that the case? Here's when they behave like their parents. So they're behaving, they're following that path. That's why they're receiving that recompense. When we say that children do not suffer for parents, children are not, proverbially speaking, put to death or don't suffer for the sins of parents. That's when... In other words, you have to kind of line up with the previous generations to be able to inherit their actions or the residual effects of how they lived their lives. And from which we can understand also in a positive way. Somebody can be rewarded as long as he or she is living in a righteous fashion. So maybe Rambam was one of the greatest sages of all time. His son, Rabbi Avram, was a sage. A very special person. The greatest of all time, we can't say that about him. He wasn't. He was a heartfelt fellow. He was a pious fellow. He was a holy man. He wasn't a Rambam. Rambam is one, one in a millennia. But Hashem may have rewarded Rebavram for the righteousness of the Rambam because he was Eichaz b'maisya He walked in his father's footsteps. He devoted himself to promulgating his father's Torah teachings and values. And he could have received the reward of his father because he walked in his footsteps. And so the Paslechem says, because it says, Mishalech betumay tzaddik, the tzaddik walks in his innocence. And Ashrei von of Acharov, fortunate are the children who... After him, all children obviously come after the parents. So he says, Achrov might then be understood as when the children follow in the ways of their parents. In which case, they would have to be somewhat righteous. So it wouldn't answer the wicked person who's prospering. So precisely because of the Achilles heel, no pun intended, in the walking after the parents, the argument made from the 20th chapter, 7th verse of Proverbs. The Omar, therefore, Rabbeinu Bachaya introduces us to yet another verse. And we've mentioned this verse already in this, in this very uh, study, in, the, in this book. This is Psalms 37, verse 25. Nar hayiti, I was young. Gamzakanti, I got old. In other words, we're describing experience of life. I was old and I've aged. As they say, I've seen a few things in my life. I'd never seen a righteous person entirely abandoned or forsaken. To the point that his children were literally seeking survival, basic sustenance. Lechem means bread. Loido, you see, tzaddik nezov. 
David Amelech says, I never saw a truly righteous person abandoned and forsaken by God. Okay, he's righteous. What does Zara have to do with this? What do the children have to do with this? The answer is, there is a connection. We do benefit from the righteousness of ancestry. We do. But it's not fair. Nothing's fair. Everything in our life is directly influenced by things that are unearned. There are people who have certain gifts. They didn't earn that. They didn't earn their intelligence if they're very smart. They didn't earn the talents that they might have. They didn't earn that. And how many times do we say a person has mazel? Is that fair? Why do they get mazel? Why does Hashem favor this one and not favor that one? Does anybody earn their good looks or their knack or ability, their charisma? Does anybody earn these things? If you have them, lucky you. It's a gift from on high. If you choose inappropriately, what could have been a gift becomes a great curse. There's an incredible story told about the great 16th century sage, Rabbi Mordechai Yafe. I called him the Bal Halavushim. In all of, his, all of his writings, he used the term clothes, wardrobe. His commentary on Rashi is called Levush Ha'ora. His, his codes are called Levush, Levush Ha'tchela. So yeah, everything is Levush. All we call him the Bal HaLevushim. And the story is told that the Bal HaLevushim was an extremely, extremely handsome and striking young man. Extremely handsome. And because he was so extraordinarily good looking, there was a local princess who chanced upon him and was very much taken by his appearance. And she was very, very wealthy and very powerful. And she basically had him abducted. And she read the riot act to him in no uncertain terms that he was going to abandon his faith and he was going to marry her. And she could have put him to death. The details are murky about there are a number of versions to the story of how he escapes, but with great Mesiris Nefesh, according to one version, he literally plows his way through a full sewage, a full sewage system, literally, to be able to escape. That was the only way out. And the story is told that he prayed to Hashem that his progeny not be good looking, that they not have this kind of temptation because he almost lost everything from a spiritual perspective. So somebody would say, good looks are a gift, and somebody else might say, maybe not. <laughs> maybe that turns out to be a person's undoing. How many people are too smart for themselves? As the scripture says, they're very smart, and they use that inappropriately. How many people have good parentage? or are poised to be in a certain powerful position, but it gets to them and they become corrupted by it. Or sometimes in the presence 
of a parent who is so overwhelming or so overpowering that the offspring are smothered and they're not able to ever grow their own wings and ever turn into something. So one would say, that's not fair. You have such fancy parents, so such powerful parents, such capable parents, such talented parents. And the person will say, yeah, that's, that's why I'm a loser. Because I could never put, my, put myself together. You know, my parents always did everything better than me. I, I could go on. I could, like, like, you, you, there's, 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 a, there's a million possible equations. The point that I'm trying to make is that Everything in Olam Hazeh, everything in the terrestrial world that we live in, everything in this world is a double-edged sword. Everything can go one way or the other. And invariably, if it can be very good, it can also be very bad. You don't have to go further than the first two womb mates, Yaakov and Esav, the first people born together, first Jewish twins. One becomes the great patriarch, the greatest of the patriarchs, the Bechir Ha'avos, Yaakov Avinu, the founder of Am Yisrael, we bear his name, Beit Yaakov, Beit Yisrael, till today. And the other is Esau, one of the most wicked, evil people ever to walk the face of the earth, who has spawned generations of brutal, wicked, cruel, horrible people, who have brought murder and mayhem to the world. Esau didn't have to be bad. Yaakov didn't have to be good. We all get to choose. So it's possible that somebody should have material benefit. And I know some of our, our viewers are frustrated. Why are you talking about money all day? Look, let's be real. In this real world, money makes people tick. It's a fact. There are some very rare people who don't care about money, who don't care about having the ability to provide to themselves. Most people do. And most people are envious when others have lots of money. Most people wish they didn't have to worry about Parnassah. I'm not talking about wealth as in power. I'm not talking about money as in luxury. People want to be able to provide for themselves. We need to provide. You need to, so to speak, keep a roof over your head. You need to provide for loved ones. It's the most basic responsibility we have as a, as a, as a spouse, as a parent, to provide for our loved ones. If you don't have the wherewithal, how are you going to do it? And a person who doesn't have Parnassah, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing. The Gemara says, Oni choshiv kemes, a person who is impoverished, who doesn't have the ability to, quote, afford life, it's like the living dead. Our sages didn't mince words, nor did they employ hyperbole. That's a very powerful statement. <laughs> Many years ago, we once had a guest at the table, and they were very wealthy people, not because they had earned it at all, why? Because they have wealthy parents. But of course, as wealthy, like many wealthy people, they thought they were fantastic. They didn't, they didn't, there was no humility whatsoever. And, and the woman kept saying, ah, money is nothing. Who, who needs money? money main, health is the main thing. Just health. Health, health, health. And my, my children are like, they're not stupid. They were like, they said, said to me after like, Ta, like, these people are like, Super wealthy. What does she keep saying? Money's nothing. It's easy. When you have money, it's easy to say money's nothing. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Money, money's nothing. Sure, because you have it. It's nothing. When a person doesn't have what they need, it's a very big deal. So it's very easy to comment on uh, social media and say, well, money, so, what are you talking about money whole day for? 
It's a reality. People deal with parnasa. And it's very, very bitter when people can't provide for their loved ones. It's tragic. And you see a wicked person, and they're prospering. Yeah, it's frustrating. What's going on over here? Like, like, is this God, and he controls everything, and he decides? This is not like, you know, Aristotelian belief, where, yeah, there's a God, but he's not really engaged or involved. Chas v'shalom. God's involved in everything. Well, if God's involved in everything, why the heck isn't he doing something about the situation? Why is he allowing these bad people to prosper and these good people are suffering? It's going to bother you. If it doesn't, something is wrong. Either with you, with your attitude, or you're not being honest. Something's wrong. Rebbeinu B'chayi knows this. We're working this through together. <laughs> Somebody asked me if, uh, you know, if I've, I've mastered B'tochen already. And my response is, I, I plan to keep working on it for the rest of my life. I, I, I didn't master anything. At best, I can try to make some sense out of some of the things Rabbeinu Bechaya says and help somebody else understand it, or a number of people understand it to the best of our ability. Mastering? Learning is the beginning of this. So when we become educated, knowledgeable, we become, if you will, in the know, theologically speaking, then we have the tools to be able to tinker with our emotions, the tools to be able to nurture our faith and our conviction and to build our betochen. But this is a toolkit. And the hard work, the heavy lifting, gets done by every individual all by themselves. You can be given tools. Rabbeinu B'chai gave us a great do-it-yourself manual. Now we got to do it. It begins with study. It doesn't end academically. The ideas and ideals have to be transmuted into our emotions. And when we feel right, the way Torah wants us to feel, when our attitude is appropriate, then hopefully we act appropriately as well. And we do good things. And that's what it's all about. As ho'elikim yiro, the et mitzvot of shmor, as the scripture says, revere Hashem, keep his mitzvahs, kizeh kol ha'odom. That's who we are. That's all you get. That's the meaning of life. It's really very simple. The meaning of life is to exist in this terrestrial frame, to be endlessly challenged, and yet to continue to maintain the proper value system. A sense of awe and reverence for Hashem. The S mitzvah of Shmur. Keep his mitzvahs. Do the right thing. No matter how hard it's going to be. And the end is always sweet. If not in this world, in the next. But in this world, it doesn't always work out. In this world, it's not always the way we, in our own myopicity, would like to see it be. So this is the first, the first approach that Rabbeinu Bechai offers us. I want to, to help you further understand, understand this, I want to add, add two very, very interesting things. So the Gemara that I mentioned before, this is before we go out into the Pnei Yeshua. I'm just going to just, you know, focus on this Gemara again. The Gemara identifies... What was it that Moshe Rabbeinu 
was asking when he said, I want to know you. I want to know you, God. Like, come on, tell me the truth. What's, what's really going on? What did he mean? What did he mean, the Gemara says? So he wanted to know Hashem's ways. And it says that Hashem responded to Maisha favorably. Says the Gemara, Sechet Brachot, page 7, Omar, Maisha Rabbeinu said, Lefonov, Rabbeinu Shalelam, Dear God, Master of the Universe, Why is there a tzaddik for whom life is good? And then there's a tzaddik rally. A tzaddik and life isn't good for him. Why is it that yesh rasha v'tevle v'yesh rasha v'raleh? Why is it that there's sometimes a righteous, a wicked person who prospers, for whom life is good, and sometimes a wicked person who suffers? Omer lay. So God says, Mesha, tzaddik v'tevle, tzaddik ben tzaddik, the righteous tzaddik, the tzaddik for whom it's good because he's, he has the parentage of righteous people. Tzaddik ben Raloi, the tzaddik who suffers, tzaddik ben Rasha, is the parentage of the wicked. And therefore, he essentially is suffering on account of their evil, of their wickedness. Rasha v'tavle, the Rasha of whom is good, he is coasting on the yichas of yesterday. Rasha ben Tzaddik, he's wicked, but he had righteous parentage. So he's enjoying God's beneficence on their account. Rosh Hashanah, the wicked who suffers, he is wicked, the son of, a wicked, of wicked people. So it's all wicked. The Gemara is very much troubled by this. The Gemara says, what do you mean? It says, Peiked oven, Ovis al Bonim. And then it says, Bonim layum salavis. On one hand, it says, Hashem remembers the iniquity of a person in the next generation. And on the other hand, we have a statement that says God doesn't do anything like that. No child should be proverbially prosecuted on account of the father's criminal activity. So the verses, when hurled one at another, seem to be a contradiction. And the Gemara answers, this is a Gemara in Sanhedrin, really, in, in greater detail. The Gemara's answer is not a question. I shared this with you before. This is when the children continue on that path, and when the children don't continue about that path. So the Gemara comes along and says, there's a different understanding over here. Rasha v'tayvlai, that's a complete, a tzaddik v'tayvlai is com a complete tzaddik, and a tzaddik v'raloi is not complete. So he has certain inequities, imperfections that have to be tinkered with. That's why he suffers. This is similar to what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar said. Some of the bad that happens to a person cleanses him from the imperfections. We talked about this in the previous episode. The Rasha, the Raloi, he's wholly wicked. So he has no goodness to be rewarded. But the Rasha, the has goodness to be rewarded. I should tell you that many, many of the commentaries in the Talmud maintain that the first and second approaches to the Gemara do not cancel one another. It's not as if the Gemara dismisses the previous idea. And there's a mystic way of learning this also. The Altar Eben Tanya explains this in an entirely different fashion. The point is this. There is an element of tzaddik and who suffers and a tzaddik who doesn't suffer. And it isn't always by virtue of account of their deeds. It isn't always like that. It isn't always like that. It's a fascinating Pnei Yeshua. Pnei Yeshua is a very important 
17th, early 18th century commentator on the Gemara. Very, very fascinating. He says, he says, first of all, he says, I'm, I'm like, Moshe Rabbeinu does not bother by the fact that the wicked prosper and that the righteous suffer. That not, was not his question. Incidentally, these words of the Pnei Yeshua serve us very well because when Rabbeinu B'chaya began to introduce this idea, as I mentioned at the time, he doesn't talk about the Gemara. The art school version suggested this is the question of Maisha. Rabbeinu B'chaya pointedly does not mention Maisha Rabbeinu. At the time, I hadn't seen this Pnei Yeshua, I told you that not everybody agrees that this is the literal meaning of Maisha Rabbeinu's words. This is only a homily, it's not the pshat. But here, fascinatingly, the Pnei Yeshua says, even homilytically speaking, that was not what bothered Maisha Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu understood that all the things that we know, he, he knew all those things. What, what was his question then? What bothered him? I'll tell you what bothered Moshe Rabbeinu. What bothered Moshe Rabbeinu was the lack of consistency. He said, if righteous people don't, 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 then that's it. Righteous, righteousness in this world does not equal prosperity in this world. End of story. If wickedness in this world does not equal suffering in this world, end of story. But there doesn't seem to be any kind of rhyme and reason. There are some wicked people who prosper tremendously, some wicked people who suffer greatly, some righteous people who suffer, and some righteous people who prosper. So Meshav Benin says, I, I don't understand. If reward for mitzvahs aren't in this world, so then there has to be across the boards. The lack of consistency was what Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to understand. What's the answer? So the, the Pnei Yeshua says, you know, the Gemara gives us a whole, this the answer, it doesn't say it in the scripture. This is just like our idea. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know our ideas. So the Pnei Yeshua says, no, it, it is actually alluded to in the verse. Because the verse says, Hashem remembers the sin, the iniquity of fathers and the children. Parents and children. So there is a generational thing. And then it says, He does kindness for thousands. So, he says, Nimza, listen to these words of the Pnei Yeshua. Everything which is related to remuneration, consequence, in this world, not in the other world, in this world, Hakol toli b'maisa avaisav. Inasmuch as a person may indeed be remunerated for his or her righteousness in this world also. Inasmuch as a person may indeed bear the consequences of their sinfulness, of their rebelliousness, of their wickedness, of their bad behavior in this world. Not always, but it could be. It's never entirely disparate from parentage. There's, there's a continuum here. It doesn't it doesn't happen in isolation. That's not the way this world works. In our world, our terrestrial world, things are not viewed in isolation. Everything has an impact on everything. The ripple effect, the butterfly effect, everything affects everything. There's nothing in this world that exists in total isolation of everything else. It simply can't exist. That's the nature of our world is conglomeration. Our world has trillions of moving pieces all impacting one another. <laughs> this, of course, is what makes the concept of Hashgachah Pratis, of divine design, so impossible to fathom. 
Because there are trillions of things happening this moment that are directly impacting what I'm about to do. And yet, each of these is hashkacha pratis, is being ordained and supervised and guided by the Creator. It's impossible to fathom. It's simply our minds cannot comprehend such a thing. But that's the way it works in this world. You cannot ignore the past. You cannot ignore where you come from. Every person will be treated in accordance with who his or her parents were. You can't get away from that. If a person has horrible parents, even if they shine like a star, people will say, look, look who their parents were. Or, wow, how amazing they are because of who their parents were. They'll even be given credit or they'll be discredited because something has nothing to do with them. It's the way it is. So the differences between tzaddikim, of course it has a difference. And he says, The difference in the wicked themselves, the Russia who is called total, complete, Gomor, She'eni Gomor, Hainamasha Omar, Bidgimumidis, Erechapai. Yeah, he says that this is, there is an element of this. This is very interesting. The Pnei Yeshua is essentially giving us an, an illuminated kind of perspective of how we have to view the idea of Scharva Einish, reward and punishment and remuneration and consequence in this world. It's never entirely isolated. Having said this, I want to share with you the words of the great 15th century, 16th century preacher, Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech, who lives in the 1600s, early 1600s, in Tzfat. Rabbeinu Moshe was said to be the greatest darshan, the one who provided the most profound homilies of Torah in his generation, in his time. Many amazing stories about Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech, but it's, um, his commentary is kind of a, a quilt work of mysticism, spirituality, spiritual concepts, along with tremendous drush, tremendous homily and, and, and um, development of, 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 of Torah ideas. Anyway, so the Alshach says like this in Pasha's Emor, in his commentary on Pasha's Emor, it's speaking over there about uh, Yom Kippur, about judgment and about, about uh, the idea of atonement, past, past, past realities, future realities. And the Ashra says like this. You should know, he says, that when we speak about Yom Kippur, it's not only the books of the living that are open before Hashem, but also the books of those who once lived. The annals of lives lived, as well as lives being lived. And he says, this has something to do with the correlation between lives lived and lives presently playing themselves out. And he introduces us to the idea of Gilgal, which means reincarnation. And I have to stop for a moment and just tell you that when we use verbiage like for example, the word reincarnation, 
Many of you have an understanding of this word, but the understanding of the word has nothing to do with the Hebrew word Gilgal. You have a particular understanding, like a person could understand love, and a person could understand heat, and a person could understand cold, and they're talking about different things. You know, we live in Toronto. For us, when it's 30 below, it's cold. A day like today is not cold. For people who are living in Miami, today is a very cold day. So you say to somebody, it's a cold day today. It doesn't mean they're thinking the same temperature. Everybody is thinking along in the framework of their experiences. And suppose somebody lives near the equator and has never been north or extreme south. They've never been in a cold place. A cold day is, you know, five degrees. That's a cold day. First five degrees, not even freezing, it's nothing. I'm talking Celsius. 10 below, 15 below, 20 below. Now you're talking cold. This is like the theory of relativity. Not really. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. It's all relative. Somebody asked me once, he says, um, we, we, the Jewish people, we don't believe in the resurrection, right? This is a very, very ignorant person. Now, of course, when he said the resurrection with capital T-H, with a capital T, he was referring to a Christian idea. But it sounds very strange to hear somebody say, we the Jews don't believe in the resurrection, because the Gemara says a person who doesn't believe in Tchia Samesim in the resurrection doesn't have a portion of the world to come. It's like, like absolute denial of everything. I said, nah, we don't, we don't believe in it. I mean, we recite it three times in our Amidah service, in our prayer, but we don't believe in it. Like, what, what are you talking about? Now, he meant one thing, I meant something else, until I understood that he was talking about a, a, a concept within the Christian faith system, and I'm talking, so well, we have a, it's the same word, it's both called the resurrection, but when a Christian says the resurrection, he's referring to something that happened to a particular figure. And when we say the resurrection, we're talking about something that we believe will happen to all of Amisro, all good people. <laughs> so, it's the same words. They're worlds apart. So words have to be qualified. Now, when most people hear the word reincarnation, they think of it in the, the Zen or Eastern fashion because that's what's become popularized in the Western world over the last 40 or 50 years. It is a Jewish idea, or there, or there is a Jewish idea called Gilgal. It has nothing to do with the Zen concept of reincarnation. In, in the Zen view, we are always alive. There's a soul just, you kind of gets recycled. So at one life, it's called karma. Whatever you don't do in this life, you, know, you move into the next life. It's all the same. It's the same exact person. Just the same person who keeps inhabiting different meat suits, or different bodies. It is definitely not the way Judaism views reincarnation. Definitely not. That's not what the meaning of Gilgal is. Why? <laughs> because um, Hillel Hazaken is a Gilgal of Moshe Rabbeinu. So are they two, two, two people or one person? Of course they're two different people. When Mashiach will come, we'll meet Moshe Rabbeinu and we'll meet Hillel. So which one gets the soul? Which body gets the soul? That's a silly question. It's a silly question because it belies a misunderstanding of the meaning of a soul, of a neshama, and how a neshama is made. 
the prophet Yonah is, has Moses-like qualities. Like Moshe Rabbeinu, he didn't want the people to look bad. He wanted to suffer himself, so he ran away. So it's a, similar. It's like, there's like a, a predisposition to the same kind of behavior. But Yonah and Hillel and Moshe and all the other Moshe Rabbeinus who, who shared that spark of his soul, that doesn't mean that they are one and the same person. There are 600,000 root souls. Millions and millions of Jews have lived. How does that jibe with the number 600,000? Well, think of it. If there were 600,000 men, what were the women's souls? Where were they from? When we left Mitzrayim, presumably everybody was married, everybody had wives. Husbands and wives left Mitzrayim together. Families left Mitzrayim together. The children left Mitzrayim, but there were only 600,000 souls. So 600,000 means a root soul. It's like saying that the liver and the heart and the stomach have very different cellular structures. Nobody can argue with that. And the heart is made up of many, many cells. Millions of cells. Sometimes, some of those cells can regenerate other cells. Science already knows how to regenerate a liver. Each cell is an independent reality. It can be isolated, separated from the others. And yet, when many, many cells come together, they form a more complete unit. Neutrons and protons are held together by electrons forming an atom. The atom is a self-contained entity, but in truth, so are the neutrons and the protons. They're all self-contained entities. When we say that we are a Gilgal, how do the men and women live? Because there are male souls and female souls. Despite the impopularity in woke culture of the differences between genders as being only counterfeit and imposed by patriarchal societies or whatever other mumbo-jumbo is today popular to subscribe to, Torah believes that God created two genders, men and women. And Torah believes that it's not a difference only phys physically or even physiologically. It's not only a difference in the physical bodies of a man and woman. For example, that their bodies store fat differently in different parts of the body. I'm not talking about the, even the, the, the specific limbs, but even the body shape is different and the body functions differently. A woman menstruates, a man doesn't. It's, that's like, it's a no-brainer. A woman's fat is stored on, on, her, on, on her hips, a man's fat is stored in his stomach naturally. It's, it's just a different kind of body. And they're emotional. The psychoschematic makeup is differently. It doesn't mean there will be, won't be men who are more effeminate and won't be women who are more masculine in nature, but they're still within a range. And Torah believes that men and women have different spiritual realities, different souls. So, the first man and woman were a single entity. Zachor Nekeva Bara Isim. He created them as a man and a woman together. Then he divided them. The concept then is, that man and woman were originally one entity that was divided. Men and women, it is said to be, are 
parts of a soul. There's a masculine part of the soul and a feminine part of the soul. And it gets divided at birth. And then at marriage, it's supposed to be put back together through the holy, holiness of marriage. And then that's supposed to create a family unit. So if a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, share a same soul, does it mean that they are only a half a person? That they're not a human being unto themselves? That doesn't make any sense. Will a woman suffer for her husband's sins? Will a, will a husband suffer for his wife's inappropriateness? Does that make any sense? Not really. But at the same time, if one spouse does bad things, is it not going to affect the other spouse? Of course it is. How could it not? I once counseled a, a couple who, one of the couples was an addict. He was addicted to something very unhealthy. I shouldn't say once, many times, many different forms of addictions. <laughs> it destroys both partners in that marriage. A person can say, well, that's my thing. It means your thing. You're not, you're not on your own. And when children behave badly, does it not impact their parents? When parents behave badly, when siblings behave badly, I mean, you can separate from a sibling, but it doesn't reflect on you. It doesn't give you grief. So these are all related. They're all related concepts. A gilgul doesn't mean that you lived before. You didn't live before. I didn't live before. I'm, you and I are not living again. What it does mean is that we are part of something larger. And just as a husband and wife can share two, the two atoms or two cells of what was once a larger unit and that was divided into a masculine and feminine side, so also when it comes to Gilgal, that there are multiple lives. Think of it as a line that's made up of many dots. So each dot, a dot is a self-defined entity. But when you fuse the dots together, you can actually see a line. There are 600,000 lines, soul lines. This is a little bit about Gilgal. Some gross oversimplification. I'm glossing over things, but nonetheless, I get to give you some idea. When I say Gilgal or reincarnation, I'm not talking about what most people bring to mind. So the Alshech says, the Gemara that we just talked about says that there's HaKadosh Baruch Hu created or brings about a tzaddik v'ralei and a tzaddik v'tevlei. A good tzaddik for whom is bad, a tzaddik for whom is good. And the Gemara's answer is that the tzaddik who suffers, he's the tzaddik ben Rasha. He's righteous, but his father's wicked, mother's wicked. So the Asher says something unbelievable. He says, first of all, this Gemara is hard to accept because it, it contradicts the facts. We know, he says, that our Kama Tzadikim, B'nai Tzadikim, righteous people, the children of righteous people, and Ra'alahim, and they are suffering. So, this equation doesn't really work. There are tzaddikim who are the children of wicked people. 
It's good for them. There are wicked people who are the children of righteous people and they suffer. And there are wicked people who are the children of wicked people and they're tevlo, they prosper. So the Alshach says, I want to tell you a secret. This is not necessarily talking about terrestrial parentage. This refers to the mystery of reincarnation. He says, you must understand that there is an earlier iteration of the soul that lived before. And there is a connection between who we are and our life's experiences and what happened previously. So if the previous iteration was a righteous iteration and you're behaving righteous, so you have nothing to cleanse, so to speak. But if you're a tzaddik, a righteous person, but the previous iteration was a miserable, horrible person, and your soul was contaminated with all kinds of toxins, now you suffer on their account. You have to fix, so to speak, you have old business to fix, old traumas to work out. That's what the Aushuk says. Is that fair? Life's not fair. Is it possible that somebody is living with a subconscious trauma from the past? Is it impossible? You can Google this. It's some video. There's a brother and a sister who are still alive, who for years, raised by the same parents, shared a wall between their two bedrooms, and unbeknownst to one another, had the same dream every single night. And at a Hanukkah party, one of the siblings, the, 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 the man, who wasn't a boy anymore, a man, begins to weep uncontrollably. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. Nobody knows what's going on. His own wife didn't know what was going on. And he tells them that a nightmare that he's had every single night of his life. And his sister is listening from the landing on the stairs upstairs, and she's like freaking out. Because in the dream, it's a dream of a Holocaust massacre. Parents are arguing, the father wants to run away, the mother wants to stay in the house, and then the Nazis come and they murder the father and they kill the mother, and then somebody comes and looks, and then everything goes black, and they had, she has the parallel dream. It's, I don't know how to explain this. It's not typical, but I can't dismiss it. It's, these are two normal people, and she, this is a video of a person telling the story. It's been documented. She didn't know he was having the dreams. He didn't know she was having the dreams. They had parallel dreams. The same exact dream their whole life. And they both end up dying in a pit. Shot into an open pit. So they're living. And they, told, they talked about this dream. Once they discussed it, they never had the dream again. Now there's much to be said. And there's a concept of 
articulating dreams and there's, there's, there was an energy that had to be spent, so to speak, or had to be expressed. It had to be told, the story had to be told. It had to be let out into our world, our atmosphere. And, and now these are people who were living with trauma, emotional, psychoschematic trauma. They were living their whole life with this trauma of having the same nightmare every single day. It's like mind boggling. What did they do to deserve this? Nothing. They're, they're, that was their neshama in a previous, they're related to that neshama. Now Mashiach will come and there'll be the resurrection and these neshamas will all meet. It might be very strange to meet yourself or the other part of yourself. But then again, people sometimes meet somebody and they feel a connection, a kindred connection. Incidentally, there are tzaddikim who have neshamas klolius that have a piece of everybody's neshama. And somehow they have this magnetic attraction. Thousands of people feel connected. A very personal connection. Hundreds of thousands of people felt connected, feel connected to the Rebbe. It's a different kind of soul. It's a super soul. It's not a normal phenomenon. It defies rationale, rhyme, reason. The personal relationship, the feeling, the close personal feeling doesn't make any sense. So there's always a, so to speak, a continuum, a, a flowing from one reality to the next, from one world to the next, from, from, from one life to the next. And this is really a very, very illuminating and different perspective where all of a sudden we're seeing, we're seeing the reality that's here, but we're learning that it's not only what's here and now, just as what's here and now is being influenced by all kinds of things happening across the global stage. So, too, what's happening at this moment in time is being influenced by the continuum of time. So whether you take it literally or talk about parentage, or whether you talk about trauma or some kind of emotional re relationship or a spiritual connection. Do you know what is said? That every time young people date, assuming that it was done in a Torah fashion, in a kosher fashion, that it's meaningful. It's meaningful. There's this idea that sometimes neshamas who once dated or once met or once grew apart have to meet once again in this world and then they can go on. That's their tikkun, so to speak. That fixes things. Then they can go on and live their own lives and meet their bashert. I'm going into many subjects here, but th th you would say, like, this is crazy. Why? The guy will say that I have to date 20 times until I met my wife. And she dated once, and she, why did I have that muzzle? Why couldn't it? But one of the answers is something with Gilgal. It's something to do with, with, with things of the past. I have to, I have to fix things from, from, from the past reality. It's very rare, by the way, that we should ever be aware of any of this. Very rare. Almost unheard of. <laughs> I had a teacher who told me once. <laughs> I, I met somebody on uh, my Friday afternoon route to putting on film with people. I met somebody who told me that he, he knows of his past incarnations and he was killed by the Nazis and he remembers being in Rome and a whole bunch of things. And I, I was a kid, you know, I was like 17, 18 years old. I was like wide-eyed. So I asked one of my teachers um, about this. My teacher, uh, <laughs> he said to me, he once had a house painter who told him that uh, he, was, uh, he remembers the Holocaust, he remembers be being uh, slaughtered. So, uh, so he asked him, uh, he says he has vivid, vivid pictures of, of, the camp, of the camps. 
So my teacher asked him, do you have vivid pictures of the camps you didn't see movies of or only the things you saw movies of? And that was, he, was like, he was like laughing, he was dismissive. Now, is it not possible? The story that I'm telling you before, I watched this video, I, heard, I read about it. it I, I, unless everybody's lying, it, it, it's extremely compelling. Extremely, extremely compelling. And there could be such a thing. It's extremely rare. Very rare. The vast majority of people imagining things is precisely that. People imagining things. But just because we don't have the ability to cogently latch onto things or know them with any kind of clarity doesn't mean they don't exist. They do exist. And just as in Freudian psychology, a person could go back to their childhood or something done to them, maybe they were locked in a closet and because of this they have a phobia or a condition 50 or 60 years later and he, you know, believed you can take somebody back and hypnotize them and get them to re-experience that differently. I mean, is that fair? Everything has an effect. There could be latent baggage that's a part of us. In fact, it's most certainly so. You know, there was a famous sage who was asked to become the president, the leader of the Nasi of the Sanhedrin, and his wife said to him, like, your boy, he was 18 years old. And the next morning, he wakes up with a gray beard. So, so he said, oh, now, now I have, they said, you don't have no gray hair, now I have gray hair. I mean, he could have used shampoo for that, you know. What's the point? So the Arizal says that this Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah was in his 18th year, he was a Gilgal reincarnation of Samuel the prophet, Shmuel Hanori, who died at the age of 52. So he says, I'm like 70 years. And we read it in the, in the liturgy of our Passover handbook this, of the Haggadah. We say, I'm like 70 and I still didn't know something. So what is like 70? You're not like 70, that's why, because you're really 18. But the idea is that he actually was able to latch on like, like, a, like an eye cloud. He was actually able to attach himself to that experience. So he actually was, he did have the wisdom. He had the wisdom of Shmuel Hanavi, his, a previous connection of his own neshama, of his own Gilgal. Okay, that's an unusual story. We don't usually get to have that kind of experience. And yet, events of the past very likely inform things going on now. There's a story where the Alta Rebbe advises, guides people, he calls them Neshama Satoyas, and the Neshama Satoyas says that there's a, there's a, a, a coachman and a person who rides the coach. And it turned out that the coach person was busy sharing his meal with poor people, which wasn't very wonderful. And the rich business person who was sitting in the coach was busy trying to help another coachman drag his horse out of the mud in which he just became dirty and didn't accomplish anything. And the point was, I'm, I'm synopsizing the story. The point of the story was, Alter Rebbe told, told this fascinating story in which two neshamas were doing, each was doing the other one's job. And he said the neshamas had to come back to this world because, because they had to fix the old business. So we may be faced with circumstances, situations in which we don't know. This is the primary reason our neshama was back here, to fix that one little thing. And then we blew it. You don't know. You know, people who are wealthy are often filled with their own self-importance and arrogant. And they look down at people who are impoverished and destitute and need their help. Who knows who was who in a previous iteration? Maybe, maybe that person who feels so high and mighty was actually on the receiving end 
in the last time around in a different Gilgal. And maybe now they have to fix something. So there's always a reality beyond our present reality informing circumstances here. And however we have to understand this, whether we look at it through those spiritual lenses or not, it, this is clear. It is clear that one of the reasons we can't approach circumstances and say, well, why do the wicked prosper? Or why do the righteous suffer? Not really understanding or knowing. Because, you know what? We actually don't know. Because we're only seeing a few pixels. An enormous picture. So we have a narrow view. Imagine a person who saw a few frames of film, but didn't see the whole movie. And he happened to see the part where they're crying. And he said, wow, what a terrible, awful life. Because he only saw these couple of frames. But that was five minutes of suffering out of a lifetime of goodness. But you only got to see a certain part of it. This is the shita. This is the approach that Rabbeinu Bahaya is introducing over here. And then we finish off the final rationale as to why, why sometimes wicked people are prospering. Says Rabbeinu Bahaya, moving right along in the, into the sixth reason, page 98 in the Kahat edition, Vyesh, Shatiel, and Asais, and then there might be a circumstance. Some, sometimes it's all about testing. Anshe Hatarmit. This is a very interesting word. He says, people of the Tarmit, and the matzpunim horoyim, the word matzpunim comes from hidden, like tzafon, like hiding the afikomen. What does this mean? The Tova Levonen says, tarmit is, comes from the word ramaim, fraudsters. Hamari matzimum, the word ramai, which means a fraudster, comes from the terminology mare, appearances sake, a person who presents a certain way, but it's not really true. They present as being pure, nikim, tzaddikim, righteous. And you know why they do this, says Tevel They present this way to abuse other people. They present themselves as being very righteous and good so that they can get people's trust, get people to invest with them, for example. And then they have no plan to help them. Quite the contrary. I once knew a person like this, a hard individual, stole from many, many people. He always surrounded himself with pious people, and he always gave himself the appearance of piety after he hoodwinked victim after victim after victim, destroying people's lives. A horrid individual. He walks with great humility. Acts very sagacious. Mashpil Gavosinov doesn't walk high and mighty, looks down. He's a quiet guy. He walks with a sense of respect, discreetness, modesty, so that everybody believes he's actually a really good person. So what does Hashem do? So Teva Levanan says, Hashem gives goodness to this person. And wealth is a very powerful test. The more goodness he gets, the more he starts to think it's all because of my own intelligence, my own wherewithal. How many people who are successful think it's all because of me? It starts to get to him. And as time goes on, he begins to walk with his head held high, and he stops masquerading as being righteous and humble, and the truth comes out.
Now, in the Tev Halavanan's view, these Anshay Tarmis themselves benefit. Matspunim Haroyim, he doesn't translate, but if you look into the, the uh, other Mefarshim, they translate the Matspunim Haroyim as the people who keep their evil concealed. Keep their evil concealed. The Paslechem suggests that the difference between Anche Tarmas and Matspunim Haroyim is the Anche Tarmas behave nicely. They do good things, but it's a fraud. It's all a means to an end. They're just cynically trying to portray themselves as righteous. He says, then you have the Matspunim Haroyim, says the Paslechem, the people who hide their own evil, who hide their own wickedness. They don't let you know. So, Kashahim Roim. I'm reading now from back from the Sefer inside the Chivas Alvavis. When they see Zeh, when they see wicked people prosper, this takes them away from the service of Hashem. Now, it sounds like they're seeing other people, but the Tev Halavanan says, no, it's talking about the person themselves. Interestingly, the Menoyah Halavavis is much more forthright in explaining it this way. He says that there are people who are fraudsters, who masquerade as righteous, but really aren't. So Hashem tests them. And through wealth, and through affluence, and through success, they lower their guard, and eventually they laugh, because they know they're really not honest, and they stop putting on the show. Menach Halavavis even goes so far as to say, if Hashem would punish them for their evil, when they were masquerading as righteous, it would be a chil Hashem. People say, look at this guy, so good, so fine, so righteous, so pious, look how he suffers. So Hashem says, first I'm going to demask him. And when everybody knows what a louse he is, then he'll suffer as he deserves. And this is the meaning he says of any person who violates, who, who denigrates Hashem in a quiet way, in the end, Hashem will exact payment in a very overt and obvious way, but first he'll make it obvious. Now the Neder Barkoidesh says, I don't know what the Menachal of Avos is talking about. He says, he says I, I read what he wrote. It's a beautiful interpretation. I don't see how this fits into the words of the Chavis the, the Avos. Frankly, I don't either. Because the Chavis Avos says that there are people who are successful. And because there are people who are successful, when they see that, then they veer off the service of Hashem. They say, huh, I was being good. Look at those wicked people. They're prospering. I want to be friends with them. They're the fun crowd. They go after those wicked, super successful people. They start to learn from their ways. And in doing so, this reveals those who are wholehearted to Hashem. Now we'll see who is sincere. Because you see, they're suffering. And they maintain their focus on doing the right thing. And there's an ace just shelton by This righteous person is going to be abused. He's going to be denigrated. He's going to be shamed by these wicked people. And don't worry. Although this is what's going on in the world and it's all part of the bigger picture, they will be richly remunerated by God for this. As we know, if you know the story with Elio with Yezevel, the wicked witch that we spoke about before, and we know the story of Jeremiah with his king, the kings that he had to contend with. 
So this, um, the prophet Eliyahu suffered terribly from Ezebel. When he confronted the false prophets of the Baal and the Harakarmel and had them killed, Ezebel was a wicked, horrible person and an idolater, a follower of the Baal cult, she got all her soldiers to go and seek at Elio as a search and destroy mission. Take no prisoners. Elio was forced to flee to the wilderness where miraculously Hashem sustained him. We talked about this in the beginning, many, many an episode ago. But ultimately, Izevil is remembered for eternity as the wicked witch of the north. And Elio Anavi is one of the greatest prophets of all time. Every brismila we talk about Eliyahu Navi. Every Saturday night, Matzai Shabbos, we sing about Eliyahu Navi. Every day we yearn for Mashiach and we wait for the harbinger of the good news, Eliyahu Navi. A reward which is inestimable. Did he suffer? Yes. But he never veered for the path of truth. In other words, this was the litmus test. Yirmiyo Hanavi warned the people about terrible things that would come that way if they didn't do tshuva. That's why in English a Jeremiah means a person who just kvetches all day. Unfortunately, Yirmiyo Hanavi's words were not heeded. He was abused. He was, he was taken advantage of. He was persecuted. He was beaten. He was thrown into a prison by his own grandson. He had threats of execution from the king who sat on the throne of David Melech, Melech Yehoiakim, and again during the reign of Tzidki Yehu. And yet, <laughs> Yirmiyahu was one of the greatest prophets of all time. He's not a minor prophet, he's got a book, a big book, all on to himself. Yirmiyahu is in the pantheon of the most pious, the greatest of the great. Does it explain why he had to suffer? No, not really. But it's all about a test. It's all about a test, he says. That's the way you have to see it. It's all about a test. It's a test, a litmus test of true righteousness and of true wickedness. Now the problem with, the problem with this is, so why did those wicked people who are part of the test, why are they prospering? Right? Because in Rebbeinu Bachaya's presentation over here, so there's these fraudsters, wicked people who are masquerading as good people, there's good people who aren't masquerading. But the only way to know the difference is that there will be wicked people who prosper. The fraudsters will drop their guard. They'll follow the wicked people because, hey, that's where the fun is. That's where success is. That's where your bread gets buttered. And the righteous people are going to suffer. So then the question becomes, so why are the wicked people, though, prospering? In other words, the wicked people who are part of God's test, the decoys, they're not malachim, they're also people. Why are they righteous? Why are they having a good time? I think this is a big problem. This is a, a problem in, in the rationale here. And maybe that's why the Menoyah Chalavavos avoids it altogether. He says, no, the wicked people are going to be rewarded with wealth so that the wealth will bring out the truth from within them. As the Neder Bakaydish himself says, that Oisher is an Esoyan Godel. Being wealthy is a tremendous test of character, and it can do you in. But why, as I understand why these people might be tempted, but we seem to be talking about another group of people. There's a group of wicked. So there's the, there's the wicked who are prospering, and then there's another group of wicked people who are masquerading as righteous, and then there's the real righteous people. And the wicked who are prospering will become 
the manner, the mechanism through which God will separate, so to speak, the men and the boys, the good from the bad, the fraudsters from those who are sincere. So why are the wicked people with them prospering, though? This is, this is the part that doesn't really get ad, uh, explained. And that's why I think why the Menorah Halavavas and the, the Tev Halavonin take the approach that the wicked people themselves are given prosperity so that they fail, so that they can, in the end, have it taken away. There, there's it's like an element missing over here. So, firstly, I just want to share with you that this idea of what's going on in the world as being a test. And sometimes the fact that wicked people are going to prosper and righteous people are going to suffer is... It's an actually, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a key component in maintaining the equilibrium, if you will, of, of reality as we know it, so that we can have a choice between right and good. And the Menorah Hamor, an extraordinary book written by Yibbenu Yitzchak Abuhav, it's not much known about this, we don't even know for sure where he lived, but it's, a, it's an extraordinary book of, of, um, of Jewish ethics and of, of Jewish philosophy. It may have been written as many as 700 years ago or as little as 400 years ago. We don't, even, we don't have clarity about this. But in the end of the third Nair, it's a, it's a, it's a book called the, the, the Menorah. It's, it's all a light. It's got seven lamps. So at the end of the third lamp, the author... Oh, you're really running out of time today. I'm sorry. It went so long. He, he introduces this whole concept, basically, of good people suffering and bad people prospering. And he says... You have to understand that if every time somebody did something good, there'd be instant gratification reward. If every time somebody did something bad, there'll be instant punishment or consequence. There would be no good or bad people because everybody would just like, like no, the animal doesn't run into fire. Isn't, it doesn't, a child is just going to do what's good for the child. But righteousness comes when you reach the age of maturity, the age of majority, and you're able to make decisions. In order to make a decision, it couldn't be so simple. It has to have some confusion mixed into it. And that doesn't mean that there will be a consequence. And Narasavar says very clearly, there will be consequences. But at the same time, if the righteous is given that Midas' touch and they eat unhealthy food and live forever, and the wicked people eat healthy food and they just drop dead because they're wicked, then in that case, nobody would be wicked and everybody would be righteous. And actually, nobody would be righteous at all because there was no contest. It was a given. It was self-understood. Nobody gets credit for not running into a fire. They say, wow, he's so righteous. He, does, he doesn't run into a fire. He doesn't jump off a building. That's called normal. It's not called righteous. Righteous is when a person is tempted and tested and still does the right thing. We really, we'll have to come back to this Menorah somewhere at a different time, but he really exquisitely illustrates this whole, this whole, this whole thing. So I, I just want to say this. I think that the sixth reason is not mutually exclusive of the fifth reason. I think that after we have the fifth reason, we can have the sixth reason. After we have these wicked people who are prospering, for no virtue of their own, but they'll, and they'll be God's fall guy. They'll be a decoy. They'll be, it's all part of God's big plan with trillions of moving pieces. And all of it comes together. All of it comes together. And on some level, everything can make sense. We can intellectually find comfort, even if emotionally we suffer when we see sorrow and pain visiting righteous people. And the fact that we can find intellectual comfort, the fact that we can make some sense out of the nonsensical aids and assists us in maintaining our spiritual equilibrium, even when things don't go the way we'd like them to go. And at this point, we're ready to move forward out of these faith conundrums of the suffering of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked. 
and we're going to move forward, Bezrat Hashem, into the last part of, of this third chapter. We're going to, so we're going to move forward now and speak about occupations that people have to look for and find, but that is, as we say, to be continued. Forgive me for the length of today's class. I hope that you found it nonetheless inspiring and uplifting. I hope you're able to follow along. And let's, let's keep meeting. Let's keep coming together to study Hashem's Torah and to inspire each other with the incredible wisdom that is available. It's, it's available. We just have to open ourselves to it. And in doing so, we can uplift and transform ourselves, those around us, and the Ezra Hashem by strengthening our betachin and our faith in our Kaddish Baruch Hu, and by moving forward with optimism and with trust, we will emerge Hashem soon cross the finish line with the coming of Mashiach Ben Heira will be Amenu Amen. Thank you again so much for joining. If you can, please choose to like and to share this class with others. And if you aren't yet subscribed, please do so. YouTube.com. Rabbi Mendel, forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thank you again. Zai gesund. Have a wonderful day. And I look forward to seeing you back tomorrow.